Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. You can be seated. Uh, my name's Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. Um, before we get into uh, today's text, I want to uh, draw your attention once again to uh, our, the City Church app. Uh, so you can download on your phone a, 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 an app for City Church. And in there, um, in, in case you haven't done this yet, there are several things that you can do. Um, one is you can, you can find out news, things that are happening. Uh, for example, if you go in there and you click on the Facebook or Twitter, you get a hold of all of our social media, and that will update you. Even if you don't have a Facebook, I know there are a few of you, I'm married to one. If you don't have a Facebook account, like you can click on there and you can look and you can see what things are rolling through, such as... For one, uh, there is a worship vision night. And so if, if you want to be a part of uh, the musical aspect of our worship and putting together these services, um, there's a vision night coming up for you. And you can read about it. You go on the app. You'll, there'll be something on social media. You scroll through. You can find that. You figure out when that is. And come. I think it's the 18th of September on Sunday night, maybe. I don't know. It's the 19th on a Monday. That's right. Thank you. Um, so if, you wanna, if you're interested in that, you can go there and uh, you can also put that on your card when it comes around. Hey, I'm interested in worship vision night. Um, additionally, you'll find things like, uh, like when uh, City College is happening, like it's going to be tonight. And I happen to be, I'm going to be with you, City College students, tonight at 8 p.m., I'm nothing without my calendar. All right, so I think it's at 8 p.m., but here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going I'm to talk to you for just a little bit about the vision of our church and how you as college students can be a part of that, and then we're going to have some fun. It's going to be an open floor, no holds bar, ask whatever you want Q&A about anything, okay? So theology to how do I keep this physique, whatever you want to know, whatever you want to know, right? I'm... I'm happy to do that. So it's open floor Q&A, and to save you embarrassment, if you're embarrassed to ask questions out loud, um, we'll have, I'm just saying this right now, so if Elisha or anybody who will be there tonight can help make this happen, we'll have little uh, three by five index cards for you to write your question on, pass them up anonymously so you don't have to stand up and say, I've got this friend, okay? So you can, it'll be, it'll be great. I'll be there tonight. Or also on the app, you can find, by one click, you click on resources and you you can get to our community group study. You can find out where community groups are meeting all across our town, what night they're meeting on. You can also find our community group study. And our community groups, in some ironic twist, are going through a study about what it is to be a community group. And so it's a fantastic time to get in a community group. And all of that is available on our app. In other words, our apps will make your wildest dreams come true. So download the app and you can stay up to date on everything. All right, this sermon is not about our app. So let's get busy. In 1898, the British started building a bridge over the Savo River in Kenya, East Africa. Now, that word Savo means slaughter. And no name could have more accurately described what happened in 1898 at that bridge project in Savo, at the Savo River. During the first nine months of the construction of this railroad bridge, Two 
huge male lions stalked the workers' campsite. And the lions would come in and they would drag men from their tents at night and devour them. Some people said they were just killing for sport. The workers did all they could to protect themselves from the lions. They built fires and they built fences. But the Savo man-eaters, as they were deemed, were not deterred by any of that. They jumped over the fences. They crawled through the fences. Everything that the workers did to protect themselves from the Savo man-eaters was futile. These lions were absolutely unstoppable. Well, in the wake of the attacks, of course, hundreds of workers fled the Savo River, right? And which brought the, the, the building of the bridge to a standstill because with no workers, you really can't make any progress. Well, eventually, the lions were shot and killed by Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, who later wrote a book about it called The Savo Man-Eaters. But before Lieutenant Colonel Patterson killed the lions, they had killed and eaten nearly 40 people. Some historians estimate that they may have killed, though maybe not eaten, they may have killed over 150 people. The lions were named by the locals the ghost and the darkness, actually by Lieutenant Colonel Patterson. He named them that because he named them ghost because as they stalked in the moonlight, when they attacked, the moonlight would make them look white as snow. And he called them the darkness because he said the way they were killing that their souls were as dark as night. Today, actually, you can still see the ghost and the darkness. Um, if you go to the Chicago Field Museum, they're actually on display there. The museum bought the skins of the ghost and the darkness from Lieutenant Colonel Patterson in 1928, and, and they reconstructed these huge killer lions. They're still on display today. In fact, even in the Chicago Museum, they don't look as big as they actually were because Lieutenant Colonel Patterson, and wouldn't you, made them into rugs for himself. Right? And so you have to trim up a ton of the fur. And so they're actually smaller if you happen to be in Chicago, go to the Field Museum to see them. So they're more terrifying even than that. Well, in 1996, Lieutenant Colonel Patterson's book, uh, his 1908 book, The Man-Eaters of Savo, was adapted into a screenplay for actually a pretty decent movie. It was on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it's still there. Uh, called The Ghost and the Darkness. Today we're going to read something that's more terrifying than hungry lions on the hunt. It's a passage that typically, at best, makes us feel uncomfortable about God. For some people, it's passages like we're going to read today that are just confirmation that God is some soulless creature that kills at random like the Savo lions. What I hope to show you today from this passage is something about God that's actually entirely different from that, that comes from this passage. I want you to see that, yes, absolutely, God is terrifying. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and we talked about his holiness. But at the same time, God is doing with his holiness something incredibly beautiful with you and with the world and with all of history. In a sense, God is the ghost of And the darkness, but he is also something so much better. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. They're at a table in the back. You can take it. 
And you can go uh, and, and read it. That is yours. It's our, our gift to you. In the meantime, you can follow along on the screen behind me. I won't read all of chapter 12. Again, we, ha- we have to make some stops and, and moves forward. I'll, I'll try to let you know when I'm, when I'm taking a jump. All right, here we go. Starting in verse 1 in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, the first of the year. All right? It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Then down in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, only a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then down in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, Yahweh's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. and You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations for all your children as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Down in verse 21 now. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house into the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as the statutes for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeons, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. And he said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. 
The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for their silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And that's the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 12. Now, like the majority of the Bible, it's difficult to understand this passage without also understanding several others. So we actually have a lot of ground to cover today. Surprise. It's only Genesis to Revelation. No big deal. But we need to get going. All right. First, you owe your future to the lion. You owe your future to the lion. Now, this passage is certainly not the easiest one to read to your kids at bedtime, right? In fact, you know, some of you, and and, and some of the Bible's actually most prominent and prevalent stories include things that have you asking, why would God do that? Why would God do it that way? Couldn't he have done this some other way? Why so terrible and foreboding to destroy children? I mean, he comes in and he kills the firstborn child of every single Egyptian. And I mean, isn't that something that Pharaoh was condemned for doing just a few chapters before? I know for many of you, it's stories like this that have you saying, see, this is what I don't like about your God of the Bible. But before you decide to write him off, it's very important that you consider what's actually happening here and who actually this God is. First, remember what had happened to Egypt, what had happened in Egypt up to this point. We've been talking about in in this series, all right? Nine times God has sent signs and warnings to Pharaoh, commanding him to let Israel out of slavery. Each time God was showing the Egyptians that he was the only real God, that all the other gods they worshiped were not actually gods at all. Each plague we talked about was a direct attack on one of the Egyptians' gods. But each time, Pharaoh hardened his heart and decided that Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews, wasn't worth obeying. All right? So when, when, when God comes in and brings these plagues, he's bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt who aren't gods at all. And of course, any time the real God crushes your little God, it also affects you in a very negative way. Your life falls apart. Additionally, with each, of the, with, with each of these plagues, like we said last week, God was simply speeding up the natural effects of what Pharaoh's sinful rebellion was doing on its own. Remember, every plague was a kind of unraveling of the created order, the way God created things to be. It was an undoing of shalom, which is everything in right relationship with each other, people and creation and God, everything in right relationship. But now creation in this kind of sped up process with these plagues is eating itself alive. You know, the weather is destroying plants. Animals are destroying humans, giving disease to them. God's order was moving backwards from the way it did in Genesis 1 and 2. It was moving not from chaos to order. It was moving from order to chaos. Which when we left off in chapter 10, remember the creation in Egypt had unwound all the way into what? Darkness. God was simply speeding up the effects of Pharaoh's rebellion, showing the Egyptians that bit by bit where their refusal to worship the one true God, he was showing them what that was doing to their souls. Unwinding, 
moving to darkness, moving to death. So when we get to this chapter 12, you need to remember that God has been incredibly patient with Pharaoh, incredibly merciful with Pharaoh. And now because Pharaoh refuses to worship the one true God, refuses to reject all the gods that he has shown, there is only one God left to bring judgment to. There is only one sign left to show Egypt what their future looks like if they reject the one true God who created them and all the things that he created that they had turned into gods. Look in verse 12 of chapter 12. Isn't it interesting that when God talks about this final plague, do you see the way he puts it? He says he is executing judgment on who? On the fa- all the false gods of Egypt. Remember, every single plague is showing the Egyptians that whatever they put their hope in that was not God was going to end in their unraveling and their falling apart and their disintegration in their death. More important than physical death, the death of their own souls. Now, why the firstborn? That's a question that everybody asks. Why go after the innocent? I mean, don't you think of that as a child is innocent? Why the firstborn? Well, to help you understand that, of course, like everything, we have to go back to the beginning. Right? First, Genesis 3.16. You remember in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve believed the voice of the serpent instead of God's word, they sin and a curse comes into the world for the first time way back then, Genesis 3. The world starts to unravel, right? Sin and death and pain come into the world and work becomes difficult and childbearing becomes difficult and things begin to break and fall apart, including people and their souls begin to break and they hide from God and they hide from each other. But in the middle of that, in the middle of this starting of the disintegration and the unwinding of everything tending towards death instead of tending towards life in Genesis 3, God gives this hopeful promise right here of a child that will be born who will reverse the curse. He will crush the head of the serpent who lied to Adam and Eve and tempted them to worship other gods. So from the beginning, humanity's hopes were wrapped up in this promise, in this promised child. And the scriptures constantly from this point forward have us asking the question, who is this child who will rescue us from the death and decay that our sin brought into the world? Now, fast forward, Genesis 22. This guy named Abraham, who God just chose out of nowhere, gave a promise to. Promise that his offspring would be the one that would reverse the curse of death. That his offspring, his kids, would be the one who would bring blessing to the whole world. His kids, somehow in his line, would be the way the world is brought back into shalom. So he waits for a kid forever, like 25 years he waits for a kid, until he is 100 years old to finally see, he waits to see this kid born, and then God tells him this, to take him, his son, his only son, his firstborn son, up on a mountain and sacrifice him. Now I know this is harsh, and this is another one of those passages where you say, what is the deal, God? 
And a lot of people read this passage and they, they take away from this passage. Well, here's the deal. You know, God just asked you to do crazy things and you're supposed to obey him even when he asks you to do crazy things. And some people will take this and say, see, this is why I don't like this God. Because what if God told you to take your son and kill him? Would you say, well, this is crazy. I'm going to go do it. That's evil. And they'd be right. But that's not what this passage means. There's something you have to understand about this ancient culture. I mean, did you ever wonder why Abraham didn't say, God, you are crazy, insane, and you claim to be good? Forget you. Abraham wasn't an idiot. I mean, no more than you and I are. See, this is so hard for us to see because we live in such an individualistic society. You know, we talk about, what do we talk about with our kids? We talk about, what what do you want to be when you grow up? That's what we all talk about. What do you want to be when you grow up? When we talk about our lives, we talk on an individual basis. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is who I am going to be. That's not the way people thought in this culture. Or actually for a long, long time. We've become pretty shallow and individualistic. But see, we we look back and we see this through those eyes. But but this ancient culture was not like that. That's not the way they thought. Their aspirations were not for themselves. What do I want to be? Their aspirations were about their family. It was about the prosperity of your family. It was about your family name. It was about who your family was and what your family line would be. And so the firstborn son for anybody in these cultures represented the future. Right? Your firstborn son was your retirement policy. He would care for you when you were old. He he would take the family inheritance and he was to be sure that the family inheritance was cared for so that lines of people down the road would have what? Would have a future. So your family would have a future. So he wouldn't go out and spend it on junk, but he would save it and preserve it for your family so your family line could continue. For their brothers and sisters, the firstborn all the way from Genesis 3 was the huge hope of the family. Remember Genesis 1 and 2, what does it say? Be fruitful and multiply. Like God instills this in there. And see, that future was owed to God. See, if a family member acted in a shameful way, it implicated the whole family. Same thing, your family member operates in an honorable way, it would reflect well on the family. One family member operates in a shameful way, that that sin is passed through the whole family. The whole family was held responsible. And some of you know how true this still is, even in our society. You know, you you are tied to your family in, in many ways. You're you're tied by nature, right? The genes you inherit, good and bad. I'm wearing good genes, I hope, today. And you're also tied by nurture, the good and bad habits that you pick up from your family environment, what your parents teach you. And even as you grow up and you try to break away from your family, what always happens to you? You always end up turning into your dad, don't you? You always end up turning into your mom, don't you? you? You say things, you're like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Right, Because you can't break away from that nature and that nurture. Or you, grow, or you look in the mirror and you're like, oh my gosh, I've become my mother. Right? I mean, that's what happens to us. See, your family can still haunt you like a ghost in the darkness. Abraham knew he owed his future to God. See, over and over in the law that will come in Exodus, that's based on Genesis, the creation, God talks about how the life of the firstborn, your future, is owed to him. See, if God would have said to Abraham, you need to offer your wife, Abraham probably would have said, you're crazy because that's not the way it worked. But when God says, you offer your son to me, Abraham knows that God is calling in his debt. 
God didn't have to call in the death that day, but he did. And Abraham knows it. So Abraham takes his son up the mountain to obey God's command to sacrifice him. Now look in verse 10 and 11 in Genesis 22. It says he stretches out his hand to Savo, to slaughter his son. But just then, God stops him and says, don't do it. And then in the thicket, he sees a ram caught by, the thorn, caught by some thorns, and he offers the ram as an offering, in, in, as a substitute, instead of his son. Now, I want to show you something. Along, uh, all along in this story, where Abra- this story of Abraham sacrificing his firstborn son, there is, there is language. And language is very important in the Bible. Like, you ought to always have a pen, and whenever you see similar words popping up everywhere, you circle those bad boys. You may not know why you're circling them, but I guarantee you, you will circle back to them. You see what I did? All right? (laughs) All along in this story, there's this kind of language of looking, of watching, talking about the eyes, of trying to see something. All right? So I've put some verses up here. This is Genesis 22, 4, 8, 13, and 14. Look at this. It starts, Abraham lifted up his eyes, right, to see where God was taking him up this mountain. He couldn't see it, but he lifted up his eyes to see it. And that word provide, that is the Hebrew word, uh, I'll do my best, ra'ah, right? Ra'ah, that's what I thought of, all right? <laughs> this is a bad romance, all right? Like, this is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which, which, which doesn't, which at its, at its literal level doesn't necessarily mean provide. You know what it means? See. God will see it through. We will see. So Abraham says to Isaac, you'll see a lamb. And Abraham names the place that God brought this ram in. He names it. God will see to it. Notice future tense. God will see to it on the mountain. On the mountain, it will be seen. What will be seen? The lamb. That's what he says. He tells Isaac, watch for the lamb. Keep keep your eyes out. Lift up your eyes. See, he will provide, he will see a lamb. Now, here's the thing. Abraham knew that because of his own sin, which is very evident in the text all the way through, that he owed his firstborn son his future, his hope, his aspirations for his family. He owed them to God. See, Abraham had a troubling question rolling around in his head as he went up the mountain. But it wasn't, how can God be such a monster to do this? I guess I'll have to go do this crazy thing. It's not his question. That's our question in our individualistic society. His question was different. He knew that God had made a promise to him that he would make his family great, that he would bless the world to this promised child, but he also knew that God was just. He knew that the life of the firstborn, his very future because of his sin, was owed to God, and that God, because he is God, could call in that debt at any time. So here's the question Abe was asking on his way up the mountain. I know God is just, I know I owe him my future. But I also know that he's unchanging, that he doesn't break his promise, and he's made one. I just don't understand how he's going to be merciful. See, Abraham knew God's justice was like a lion, like the ghost in the darkness, that God would always do what was right that he would never let sin or evil go unpunished. God, in his justice, would always hunt down sin and devour it. So he was looking, watching, 
searching, trying to see what God was up to. Now, did you notice that he was looking for a lamb? But instead, God substituted what? A ram for Abraham's son. Now, that's just, you're not like, well, a ram is like a lamb, all right? Well, try calling them the L.A. lambs and see what happens, okay? Football starts today, NFL, all right? I see somebody quickly walk out. No, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Titans are always terrible. This means that on the way, look, on the way down the mountain, Abraham is changing his question. Remember, on the way up, he was asking, I know, I am sure God is just, but how in the world is he going to be merciful? But on the way down, after he sees God's mercy, Abraham is asking, well, now I know God is merciful, but how, is, how and when is he going to be just? When am I going to see that lamb? Now back to our story in Exodus. God is finally calling in the debt for Egypt's sin. He's been patient with them over and over, plague after plague after plague, relenting the plague, relenting the plague, relenting the plague. And he is finally requiring their future from them. But did you notice that this time, Israel, look at this, this is very important. Israel is not off the hook this time. In the latest plagues, God had used those plagues to only affect the Egyptians. But now this destroyer that God is unleashing, this ghost in the darkness, this lion of justice will not discriminate. Look in verse 13 and 23 of Exodus 12. See, he doesn't say, you'll be saved from my justice because you are Hebrews. Nope. He doesn't say, you'll be saved from my justice because your sin is not. You do sin, but your sin is not as bad as the Egyptians. See, what I do is I take the Egyptians and I take the Hebrews and I kind of weigh them side by side. I see whose sin is worse and destroy or be like, oh, we're definitely going after the Egyptians because these guys are really bad. You guys are just a little bit bad. You don't do big sins, but they, oh my word, the Hebrews. That's not the way to destroy or decides. The ghost in the darkness does not discriminate. He simply finds where there is sin and injustice. Any sin and injustice. And he requires your future from you. God was once again speeding up the effects of this sin. He was bringing what was a future day of reckoning into the present right to their doorstep. And listen, this is true of you and me. Every single one of us has sinned against God. We are all guilty of worshiping other gods. Like anything that you think, if only I have this, then I'll be happy. Or as long as I get to keep this, I'll be happy. That is a God. You worship that thing or that person. And we're all guilty of worshiping other gods. And the lion of God's justice is not looking to see who is better than whom. God's justice holds each of us accountable and requires our future from us. Like the ghost and the darkness in Savo, God's justice isn't asking about your race or looking for a list of your good deeds or comparing you to other people. He is only asking if you have worshipped other gods and that answer for all of us is unequivocally across the board, yes, and the lion is coming. But isn't it interesting that God says to Israel, I mean, this is, think about this. This is phenomenal. 
I'm unleashing my justice, a ghost in the darkness, the destroyer, an unstoppable force that no fire or no fence or no door or no barricade can stop. He is going to cut through the world's most formidable military power like a hot knife through butter. But there is one thing that will stop the destroyer, a fluffy little lamb. Isn't that crazy? What in the world? You have to slaughter a lamb. And you put his blood on the doorpost. And you'll live. I'll overlook your sin. I'll pass over your door. I'll let you have your future. The ghost in the darkness will pass over you if you stretch out your hand and slaughter the lamb. Now, here's the question we're all asking now in the middle of the text. Was this the lamb that Abraham had looked for? Was this the lamb? When there was a ram, was this the lamb that was the answer to Abraham's question coming down Mount Moriah? I know God is merciful, but how will he be just? But see, it can't, it can't be this lamb because this is more mercy for Israel's kids. This is another ram in the thicket. This is not the lamb, it's just a lamb. But it was saying something new to Israel, and that is only a spotless lamb can get your future back. Only a spotless lamb can get your future back. The Lord is very clear in his instructions to Israel regarding two things in this passage. The first thing, that his instructions are very clear in this passage that we read, is what sort of lamb this is supposed to be, right? Uh, Okay, so it can't just be any lamb. You don't just get to pick, right? Look in verse 5. This lamb has to be unblemished. This lamb has to be the best you have. This lamb has to be perfect. See, if you were going to have a substitute lamb for your firstborn, he wasn't going to be the runt of the pack. You didn't go and pick one you didn't like, you know, the one that was always biting you. You had to pick the very best. You had to pick the one that wasn't flawed. Think about that. Why would he say that? Because a blemish or a defect or a flaw would be a reminder of the curse of sin. You'd look at that lamb and you'd say, this lamb's broken. Sin curses everything and this lamb's broken. This lamb's messed up. Sin's everywhere. You would be offering a part of God's creation that was falling apart to save the same creation from unwinding. And that doesn't work. You can't give God something that's already broken and say, take care of the broken. No, only something that was brand new, still growing. That's why he asked for for a, a, a newborn, like first year. Still moving towards newness. You know, as you grow up, when you're a kid, there, there becomes that point, I'm not sure when, what age it is, where you start get it from getting stronger and stronger and better and better to getting older and older and weaker and weaker, right? So he says, let's, let's get, yeah, some of you laughing because you know you passed that moment. I know I have. And so he asked for a lamb, a year old, a newness, unblemishedness, perfectness, something that looked pure and unstained by the curse and sin of death was the only thing that could substitute And they had to slaughter this lamb. They had to bring the curse of death on something that was pure. On something that was new. The justice of the lion had to devour the purity of the lamb. 
the ghost in the darkness had to eat the lamb so he didn't eat the people. The second thing, that's one thing, he said the lamb's got to be spotless. The second thing that God goes on in detail about in this passage is kind of weird too. It's about a meal, right? It's about a 